elsewhere, not just in these three chapters. I think it's in three other places that John ties his narrative to certain feast days and times of of, uh, their Jewish calendar. And so he presents the new in the framework of the old. He presents the strange, so to speak, in the framework of the familiar. So that, uh, you know, we we might do that ourselves. You know, we, we might refer to a certain time in history, you know, when Abraham Lincoln was president. This happened. You know, you have that sort of principle going on. This happened then. It's kind of what John is doing here. He ties these narrative or this, even this sign of feeding the 5,000 to this occurrence that it was close to, to the time of the feast because we don't know why he mentions that. Maybe that is why that it says there were 5,000 men. Here in John, it does not say that there were additional uh, people involved, which in other places it does. But here, it may be that he's noting that, you know, the Jewish feasts were meant for the men to, uh, to engage in and to participate in. And so if, if the Passover was near, maybe these men were en, en route to um, Jerusalem uh, we, we don't know. There's some surmising there. But also, I want to say John 5 and John 6 follow the same pattern. They have a very similar construct. For instance, both chapters begin with a miraculous sign from Christ. You know, a revelation of His person and position. Remember, it was the crippled man by the pool of, of uh, Beth. Beth Bethesda, I always have a problem rolling that off my tongue. And so he had there this sign at the beginning of the chapter and then a, a revelation of how this related to him as a person and in his position. They, both of these follow that same pattern. We have a miracle and then we have a, an explanation, so to speak. Both chapters also reveal the same response. Primarily, the response is a response of rejection. Where, if you remember, when we taught out of John 5, they were, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. It was that that idea there of rejection that, that, you know, he made them angry because he he healed this man on the Sabbath and then he, he just, he just, poured fuel on the fire by claiming to be equal with God, you see. And, and it made them, the Jewish uh, religious leaders, very angry. That's the primary rejection in chapter 5 is from the religious leaders. Chapter 6 shows now rejection from his followers. Interestingly, if you look at John chapter 6 and the, the ministry there to the multitude. There are various places here in John 6, it says that they, that they complained. Um, for instance, in verse 41, the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. In verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I think it is in, uh, also in verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And then Jesus said, 
When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Also notice in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back. Or it simply means they went to the back of the crowd. They, they, they chose not to be prominent in, in pursuing him and walk with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? So John 6 is a, is a it, again, is a miraculous sign, and it's, it's, it's a very public sign, just like John 5 was. But the reaction is from his more intimate followers, those who, who were interested in him. And they were so fickle, these followers of John chapter 6, so fickle. They said in verse 14, this truly is the prophet. And then in verse 15, they wanted to make him a king. And then these very people, just, to, just you know, as, as Christ continued to, 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 to tell who he is, they said, well, you know, that doesn't fit what we would like to see. That's, that doesn't suit us very well. And so they, um, they said in verse 30, what sign will you perform then? And he had just gotten done performing a sign. You see how fickle they were. It's a very... So, so the two chapters re, are, are constructed very similarly. But interestingly, chapter 5 is located in Jerusalem. It is in the south of the Judean um, region. It is, it is southern Judea. Chapter 6 is located in Galilee and Capernaum, which is the northern region. In both cases, you have rejection from the south, you have rejection from the north. It's not, it, it shows us that the ministry of Christ was a, a, a very challenging ministry for him to, uh, to engage in. But as we, as we look at this text here, you know, sometimes, sometimes a passage of Scripture will intimidate me because of its complexity. But sometimes a passage of Scripture will intimidate me because of its simplicity. What do you say out of John chapter 6? Okay, it's, it's, it's very straightforward. It has very clear teaching. It is... It is the power of Jesus Christ on display. And by the way, that is my title, The Power of God Displayed. And so, this account of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle besides the miracle of the resurrection of our Lord that's recounted in every Gospel. All four Gospels have only this recorded miracle, they all record only this miracle. All of them equally record it. Matthew 14, 13 through 23, Mark 6, 30 through 46, and Luke 9, 10 through 17. Now, a little bit of background for this miracle is that Matthew and Mark show us that John the Baptist was killed just prior to the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew actually gives this as a reason 
for their seclusion. Uh, I, may, I may flip back to that. In Matthew 14, it says this way. In verse 12 and verse 11, and his head was brought, I, I, you know, the king or the, yeah, he, he beheaded John in prison and brought his head, as we know, on a platter for this girl. And his disciples, in verse 12, came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. And it leads straight here, leads straight into the uh, feeding of the 5,000. But here in Matthew gives it as a reason for him withdrawing from the crowd. Um, And in Mark and Luke, it states that the apostles had just returned from a, a great ministry endeavor. They, they had just returned from uh, ministering two by two, I believe it is, and returned and gave Christ a situational report, so to speak. And... Christ then subsequently takes them to a deserted place for rest. And we see that, I'll, I'll turn to the Mark account for that. In Mark um, 6.31, I think it is. Then the, actually verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And then it goes directly in. So what we have in John 6, in verse 1, we have in a sense, we have Christ retreating or Uh, going on a retreat, so to speak, withdrawing from ministry engagement, calling his disciples alongside and said, look, you guys, let's go back. Let's let's consider what, what you have encountered and what you have taught, and we'll go back and we'll rest a while. Well, after these things, Jesus went over the sea, of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, which it's thought that he went from the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee to the northeastern side. And that is where they went to a deserted place to rest. And may it, it may well have been that Christ himself was retreating, going to this deserted place, maybe even to grieve John the Baptist. These are not specifically stated, but it does say that when he heard it, he withdrew. So we have that background here uh, for John 6. And the, the other Gospels speak into the occasions that surrounded this. And so we see how this worked out for Christ. Notice that a great multitude followed him.
because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And they followed him. The other account said they followed him on foot. They escaped, so to speak, with a boat. But the apostle, I mean, the, the multitude followed him on foot, which must have been they went around the northern side of the Sea of Galilee and went over to the eastern side. And some of them got there before Christ did and were there to meet him when he came to his, um, his place of, of retreat. So they would have gone around the end of the lake on foot. And it says someplace they ran to him out of the cities. And here it is saying that it is because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. When Jesus saw them, again, drawing from other accounts, when Jesus saw this multitude, he was moved with compassion. From a place of, of, of maybe even in his own grief, he was moved with compassion for this crowd of people, this great multitude, it says. And he says, for they were as sheep without a shepherd. They were as sheep without a shepherd. Let me ask you, if I don't know how many of you here have experience with sheep. But I do. Brother Enos does as well. If you invested $20,000 in a herd of sheep, and you had pasture, fenced-in pasture with water, and you bought this herd of sheep and you run them out into the pasture, and you said, okay, I'm going to leave them there for five years. And I'm going to return. I want to give them time. I want my investment, I want to give my investment time to grow. What do you think you would find if you came back five years later? Sheep without a shepherd vanish without a trace. I'm telling you, this morning we had five coyotes in our sheep pasture. Five at one time. Sheep are looking for a place to die. They are looking for a reason to expire. If you came back five years after your investment, you would probably not find anything. Maybe a bone or two. But you would not find a pasture full of young lambs and growing flocks. And No. They are sheep without a shepherd. They have to have care. And what we have here, when Jesus seen this multitude, He said these people, they are without Direction. They are without provision. They are as sheep who, who will die without my compassion. This is the picture that John 6 paints for us. Spiritually, without Christ, we are as sheep without a shepherd. And you could say, well, that's even true physically, which it is. If Christ would withhold His blessing, we would all be looking for a place to expire. 
This is the picture that we have here in John chapter 6 with this unfolding. We have, as one commentary said, we have a picture of a world perishing, of a powerless disciples, and of a perfect Savior. Here in John 6, with this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we have multitudes of people perishing for lack of bread. Now, I want to be careful that I don't just spiritualize everything here. But there is a picture of the Gospel here in John 6 in this, in this portion. Now, it doesn't necessarily carry through to every degree. The analogy tends to break down. But there's a beautiful picture here also of the Gospel. But first of all, we see a mul- multitudes of people perishing for lack of bread, wandering in desert places, looking for they know not what. Not only do they not have bread, they have no flour or oil. They have no means to make bread. Not only do they not have provision, they are in a place where there are none. There are no provisions. There are no provisions on earth to sustain life. If they find something, think about it, if they find something that appears to be life-giving, they squabble and fight over it and, and, and abuse and exploit each other to get it. This is the nature of humanity, of sheep without a shepherd. You give a, a, a herd of sheep something to eat, they don't care whether they step in it or if they trot another down to get it. It's incredible. You know, the, the picture of us as sheep is not flattering. It's not flattering. But John 6 also gives us the glorious picture and revelation of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciples all come to Christ and they say, send these people away. There, there are no provisions out here. You know, it's, it's, the day is growing weary. It's, 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 you know, it's time to think about letting these people go. There, there's no lodging here and no food. The disciples were concerned. They said, send these people away that they might find provision. No beds. You know what he says to them? He tells them in all three of these accounts, he says to them, they don't need to go away. You, he says, give them something to eat. Have you ever noticed that that is what Jesus told them? They came and said, look, there's nothing to... And he says, well, there's no need for them to go away. You give them something to eat. He even asks Philip here in this account here, he says, how are we going to feed this multitude? Where are we going to get enough bread to take care of these people? Where shall we buy it that these may eat? While the disciples scrambled, Christ tested. While they were 
Oh, oh well, you know, uh, 200, 200 denarii, you know, a, a 200 guys working for a day. That's what this is. It translates to that. 200 people, guys working for a day, digging a ditch or building a temple or whatever, could not buy enough bread with those wages to feed this crowd. And then, of course, Andrew said, well, there's this little lad here. Now, but he said, but what is that among so many? You know, what is that? But in John 6, 6, we have this beautiful picture. But this he said to test Philip. For he himself knew what he would do. Now listen, you know, the Creator has a plan. Do we know that? The Creator has a plan. And it, we call it the plan of salvation. It's the plan of salvation. He knows what He will do. He has known it from eternity past, by the way. He Himself knew what He would do. I, I think sometimes we, we, we don't have a glorious enough picture of our Jesus. We sang this song this morning. I think in one of the songs we sang the invincible Christ. You know, He's absolutely invincible. He's not stymied by no food, no bread. He's not stymied or, or, or troubled when, when things look like they're out of control because they're not out of control. And so if 200 men working can't pay for enough bread, let's not think that, that this little lad's willingness to share his lunch is some sort of picture of the gospel because it's not. He could have just as easily have turned a rock into five loaves of bread. The gospel is not where someone is willing to give his little bit and then Christ multiplies it to the point that he becomes saved. No, it's not that. Here is where the picture kind of breaks down. It's almost like, I thought about, it's almost like that little, that little thing about the five barley loaves and the lad who carried them and the two small fish. It's like the Lord is giving us enough rope for us to hang ourselves with. You know, if we would understand that, oh, the gospel is man-centered and, and man must just contribute his little bit and the Lord will bless it and then he can, he can enter in. No. No, he could have just as well found it under a rock because this, this little lad is not a picture of the gospel. So there is here no earthly solution to man's problem. Notice this, again verses 33 through 35 where he says, the bread of God is he who comes down. We need a heavenly solution, brothers and sisters. We need heavenly bread. And that's exactly what we got. We have gotten heavenly bread. It is the creative power of Jesus Christ that meets man's needs. He is the one who is our bread. 
He is the one who, he himself is that provision. So Jesus took these loaves here in verse 11. It says he took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the multitude. Have you ever wondered why it was that he, he commanded the, uh, he said in verse 10, make the people sit down. And they were very orderly. They sat in ranks of 50 and 100. I, I don't know why. But, but we, can take a, we can take a lesson from it that, that things are not done in indece- you know, indecently or in disorder. Another thing is, if you have 5,000 men and there are 50 in a group, how many, how many groups would that be? Wouldn't it be 100? Now you can see, you can easily count 100 groups of men, but you can't count 5,000 men very well. Maybe, maybe Christ was intentional about the size of this miracle. Well, we don't know how many people were there. Maybe, maybe 500, 600. No, there were 5,000. You know, if you were there and you were in the middle of a group of 600 people, would you be able to see how many really were there? Anyway, so we have them sitting. And he gave to disciples and the disciples distributed to the multitude. And think about it. Who gave to the multitude? The disciples. He told them, you give them something to eat, right? Now, he, now they were able to give them something to eat. More on that later. But listen, Christ's provision here was not barely enough. It, it, was, it was over and abundant clearly says that they were filled and that they had as much as they wanted. Not just, you know, you, you would think about that. Think about that. If you had to feed 5,000 men, you pour a little more water into soup, you say, well, you might not, you know, it might not go, it might not feed them exactly the way you, they would like to be fed, but it's going to keep them through till the morning. You see, now this was not the case here this was, they were filled. It was more than they needed. It was actually all that they wanted. That's a pretty different, that's, that, that paints a different picture. And by the way, if there is any doubt, the 12 baskets of leftovers dispels them. But not only does Christ, as I was saying, provide for our needs... But he also fills us with the desires of our heart. Listen, if you know what it means to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ, it is more than sins forgiven. Is it not? Yes, it is. It's much more than sins forgiven. Sins were your main problem. They actually disrupted you from your fellowship with God. But when He forgives you your sins, 
He also fills the desires of your heart. Now you have the opportunity to fellowship with Christ, to fellowship with God, to fellowship with one another. You know, He gives us more than we need, so to speak. He gives us what we truly want, what we truly desire, you see. Our hearts are made to worship. We are made to to enjoy fellowship with God. But our problem was sins, and so it is more than sins forgiven. That is the great need. But what about the desire that you have? Truly, He provides for that as well. He not only provides for our forgiveness, but also our desires for fellowship. That's what we have here. Again, a picture of His provision. You know, the miracle now, as we move on here, the miracle was so clearly wrought that the men testified, this truly is the promised prophet. You know, these people were not ignorant of the, of the promise made that I will raise up among, from amongst you another prophet like unto Moses. These people were familiar with Moses, with the prophet, with the, promised, with the promise of the prophet. They were familiar with that. And this occasion... was so so profound that they said, truly, in our lifetime, this is the one. Now, I want to show you something as we consider this attitude. I want to show you something in Matthew. If you would flip back to Matthew 14, to verse 22 and 23. Matthew 14. Now, verse 21 says, Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So there were more than 5,000 people here. The account in John says there were 5,000 men. But now, in the Matthew account, there were women and children present as well. But I want, to, I want to show you something in verse 22 and 23 here in Matthew 14. Immediately, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He sent the multitude away. And when He had sent the multitude away, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. Now when evening came, He was alone there. Okay. A very similar passage in Mark 6. If you, uh, I'll just, you just stay there in Matthew if you would. I'll read this very same passage. Immediately in John 6, 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he sent, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Okay, both cases now. Following the miracle, following the feeding of the 5,000, this awesome event that stirred up the passion of the people, stirred up the zeal of the people. 
in the Matthew and the Mark account, there is a sense of urgency here. Notice, immediately. It says, immediately. Both cases. And he says, he made his disciples, and that word made, there's a center column word for that, where he says he invited them, or he strongly urged them to get in the boat. You disciples, I, I need you to get in the boat immediately. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but there's, there's a sense of urgency here. Now, my question to you is, what is going on? What is going on that Christ is very urgently inviting them and, and, and imploring them to get in the boat? Well, it is because of John 6, verse 15. I need you to get out of here. I need you to get out of Dodge. Because these people are about to come and they're interested in making me a king. He perceived through his omniscience when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He got his disciples out of the way. If there were any temptation for his disciples to join with this crowd in a misgotten zeal, in a misplaced fervency after what Christ had accomplished that day, he invites them and urges them strongly to just leave. And then he himself withdraws. I believe that's what's going on here, is that he urged them to get out, out of the way, out of this misguided zeal for Christ. Now, in this account of the feeding of the 5,000, John doesn't record this, but there was also a teaching and a healing ministry happening. Um, it does refer here that they came because they had seen his healing, but the very passage also, this account, this occasion, this is a great moment of teaching where he's teaching them many things about the kingdom. And he is giving them a lot of teaching and also he's healing them. In other passages, it, it clearly states that. This miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was toward the end of a wonderful, amazing day in the presence of Jesus Christ. It was, it was the end of, of the day. And... and it seems to me it was so moving and exhilarating to this, you know, to these people. The very people blessed by Christ, that they became filled with this misguided zeal. Think about it. They decided to harness this power for their own agenda. Think about the, the illogical. Can you imagine having witnessed such great power and assuming that you could force Jesus to do anything? Doesn't it, isn't it illogical? Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force. <laughs> it's interesting that people's minds go there. But that's, that's what we have here. After his great displays, creative power and they want to do this. To force him against his will. 
you know, their desire to make him king made him withdraw. Think about that. That affluence that the crowd wanted to give to him. But when they came to arrest him, what did he say? He said, it is I. It is I. I am he. These people were mistaken as to the nature of Christ's kingdom. Now this is an important point here. I I feel like we must not miss it. They, They were mistaken as to the nature of Christ's kingdom. And indeed he was a king. Remember truly God had already installed him. Psalm 2, where he says in verse 6, that I have already installed my king in my holy hill. He was a king. But not a kingdom of this world. It was not an earthly kingdom, but rather a spiritual one to set people free from the bondage of their sin, you see. That is what he was here for, to release those who, who were all their lifetime subject to bondage. To, de- to deliver them from the captivity of Satan. See, that was what was going on here. This is a picture of, of his divine power. And even if it wasn't meant for them to understand that his provisions of the, and his creative power in feeding them, is the same power that feeds them spiritually, it was meant to show that he was much more than a man. That he was divine. And that he was here giving them a, a gospel to, to reveal God's will for them. Matthew Henry put it well when he said, right notions of Christ's kingdom would keep us to right methods for advancing it. And I think this is really important. John 6.15 is the spirit of simony. It is the spirit of the sorcerer of Acts 8, where when he's seen the power of God displayed through the Holy Spirit, that the laying on of the hands, the people received the Holy Spirit, Simon wanted to buy it with money. He wanted to capture this power and use it for his own agenda. That's exactly what's going on here. These people wanted to make him king so that they could be delivered from the Romans. I mean, how wouldn't it be wonderful to have a king who had an army and all he had to do to, to supply the army was to just make bread out of rocks. I mean, there was, there was no conquering such a king, you see. There's no way that you can out-provision Jesus Christ. You don't need a supply train. You don't need a line. You don't need to keep your, your rear guard in place. You can just keep marching forward and every day you just tell your soldiers to pick up another rock. And we can whip these Romans. We can get them out of this, this land. We can use this power, you see. We can use this name. We can use this 
wonderful ability and channel it this way. We're guilty of that. We are way too many times we are guilty of using the name of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, for our own glory, for our earthly, for some earthly zeal that we might have. Let me ask you this. Where do you find yourself in this picture as we look at application here? Where do you find yourself in this picture of John 6, in this multitude of people? Are you perishing for lack of bread? No provisions without Christ. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. Is that where you find yourself? Perishing for lack of bread. There's no reason for it. Except your own hardness of heart. Should you turn away and deny the heavenly bread that's come down from heaven. Otherwise, you're starving to death. No provisions. Or number two, are you one of those partaking of the heavenly bread? Brought near by the blood of Christ. Not strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Are you partaking of this heavenly bread, this divine provision? Or number three, are you a disciple of Christ? Going up and down the ranks of 50 and 100, distributing the provisions of Christ. You see, what he told his disciples, brothers and sisters, is still for us today. He told them, you give them something to eat. That is exactly the word to us today, brothers and sisters. That if you profess that you have received the bread of life, if you are a disciple of Christ, then He is breaking the bread, He is blessing the bread, and when He blesses, we confess. You see, It's still the same picture. He breaks it. We distribute it. It's not ours. But listen. If you name the name of a disciple of Jesus Christ and you are not of the twelve going up and down the fifties and hundreds, what's going on? It doesn't add up, you see. Because the disciples of Christ received from Him and gave it to the multitudes. That is our calling, brothers and sisters. It's not to make Christ a king. He is one. It's not to make Him something that we want Him to be. He blessed it. They confessed it. Christ still addresses the multitudes through His disciples. Or number four, are you one of those who makes Christ something against His will? 
You've been blessed to be in the gospel preaching. You've been blessed. But are we making Christ something earthly that your flesh, that my flesh can glory in? Something that does not reflect Christ's true mission. To bring life, to bring life to a dying world, brothers and sisters. That's all that we're about. We're not about what we look like or how big we can become. We are about taking the bread of life and giving it to the 50s and the 100s. You know, a misbegotten glory to Christ is no glory to Him. It's, a, it's, it's you painting gold with a lacquer on top as as Matthew Henry says, it's like you painting a ruby. You try to enhance the, the glory of Christ and you obscure it. You see. When ultimately the people are perishing for lack of bread and we're concerned about our reputation. Isn't that a shame? We're concerned about this, that, or the other. Like what our offering is or whatever it is. And we forget that we are called to minister. That we are the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus breaking the bread, distributing the bread that He has broken. Well, quickly, as we look at the last, there are two more miracles here in this passage. And they are in this text that I read from verse 1 through 21. And in the context of the feeding of the 5,000, in contrast, sorry, to the feeding of the 5,000, these two miracles are very intimate and very private. Think about it. Only His disciples got to see them. Let me remind you that they were on the Sea of Galilee at His urging. At His urging and direction. They were in the middle of a storm. They had just, and and by the way, I think this is a pattern very likely. That if you have a mountaintop experience, and that's just what they had, they were up on the mountain feeding 5,000, seeing the glory of Christ. They will soon be at sea level, crying out to God. It's just the way it works. It is the way it works. Oftentimes, you have this mountaintop experience and and in a moment, through the following of Jesus Christ, now you are at sea level and you're wondering, where is Jesus? Because He's not in the boat with me. But He's about to give them something that He would not give the multitude. I mean, if that was dramatic, feeding the 5,000... How would you have liked to have been in the boat when he stepped in and the wind ceased? That was dramatic. Other accounts, not not this particular account, this is where Peter in his, he jumps out of the boat. This is the count. And he walks on on the water. Other accounts say, that the wind and the sea both quieted. 
Here in this account, it just says that the wind ceased. But they were immediately at their destination. Immediately. Those are, that's the two miracles. Jesus walking on the water, defying the laws that he himself established, the laws of gravity, defying them, even allowing Peter for a few brief moments to do so as well. And then he gets into the boat. They willingly received him. But they had this mountaintop experience. Now they were fighting for their lives, rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing, wondering where is Christ. You know where Christ was? He was still on the mountain. What was he doing? He was interceding. He's still doing that, by the way. While you go and you row and you row and you row, He is in heaven interceding for you. Giving His grace to you. That you might have strength to endure the rowing. And then suddenly He appears to you and He says, Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. It is I. It is I. He's not far from your trial. He's not far from your trial. He's in the middle of it. Whatever that is, whatever that trial is, brothers and sisters, be not afraid. Be not afraid. He is interceding for you. He is ministering for you. Well, I pray the Lord would bless this passage of Scripture to you and uh, to me.